Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic International Studies. So for this discussion, we're focusing on China-Russia. And the proposition is Beijing views a strong China-Russia relationship as a net strategic asset. Uh, because this is such a complex topic, our two experts decided asked me to make this a discussion, not a debate. So hopefully through their discussion, we will impact the various different elements of this issue. But as you recall, in February of this year, just preceding Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese President Xi Jinping issued statements that the China-Russia relationship has no limits. The two countries continue to share both a close economic relationship and deepening military ties. However, we've also seen that Ch Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine has damaged China's economy, and China has been a relu reluctant to fully voice support of Russia's activities. So in, for today's discussion, we've uh, asked our two experts to help unpack various dimensions of this, but I, I think I do want to provide the caveat that the debate topic, again, is just a simplification of this very complex issue. So before we enter this debate, we're going to do what we did earlier, which is we're going to do a poll. Again, the polling instructions are online. Um, so you can either poll through the online link or you can poll using your phone. So you would text 22333, China Power, one word. If you agree with this proposition, you would select A. If you disagree, you would select B. So we're getting the live polling results right now in the room. Uh, and again, this is not a debate, so I don't think it's either of your responsibilities to argue, agree, or disagree. But let's just give it one more moment. And as we're doing the polling, let me actually introduce our speakers. So our first guest who will be speaking is Mr. David Shulman. He is the Senior Director of Global China Hub at the Atlantic Council, where he leads the Council's work on China. Prior to joining the Atlantic Council, Mr. Shulman was senior advisor at the International Republican Institute, where he oversaw the Institute's work building the resilience of democratic institutions around the world against the influence of China, Russia, and other autocracies. Our second guest is Ms. Yunzun, senior fellow and co-director of the East Asia Program and director of the China Pro Program at the Stinson Center. So her expertise is in Chinese foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and China's relations with its neighboring countries and authoritarian regimes. So I'm very grateful that both Dave as well as Yun are with us today, uh, and we'll see their uh, uh, points very shortly. But let me now turn to the poll. So based on the live poll today, we have almost an equal split compared to the polling earlier, about 55% agree that Russia is a net strategic asset for Beijing, and about 45 disagree with that. Let me also show the Twitter poll that we did that was over a longer span of time, also very similar polling, about 50, almost 50-50 uh, exactly. So I think this will make a very interesting discussion, and I'm eager to see if this discussion will change any of the views. So with that, let me turn the floor to Dave. Well, thanks, Bonnie. Um, and thank you uh, for, to CSIS for, for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, I'm particularly looking forward to, to having this conversation with, with Yun Sun, who's uh, such a great expert on this topic, as well as many others. I am surprised by that polling result, and I think uh, Yun and I both are, and that's part of why we had uh, decided to discuss this as rather than debate it, uh, because I think we were largely firmly in the, uh, in the yes camp. Because to me, you know, the question, does Beijing view a strong China relationship uh, as a strategic asset? 
you know, Beijing, not me, not anyone here, uh, not anyone in the Washington think tank community. Um, to me, the answer is, is fairly evidently yes. Um, and I think that's fundamentally because uh, Xi Jinping has stuck with Vladimir Putin and Russia without much deviation, I think one could argue, over the last nine months, despite what I think we could see as quite close to the sort of stress test one might design if you wanted to challenge the durability of China's commitment to this relationship. We're talking not only about utter embarrassment of the Russian military uh, in Ukraine and what that might mean for China's valuation of Russia as a security partner, but also diplomatic and reputational costs that China has borne as a result of its tacit backing for Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine and ongoing brutality there, uh, particularly with Europe, which is a critical economic partner for China. Uh, and meanwhile, Russia's own economic um, worth as a partner for China beyond energy has shrunk further as its isolation has grown. Um, so despite all of this and more, China clearly continues to back Russia. And as Foreign Minister Wang Yi uh, told his counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, in his first post-20th Party Congress foreign call a couple weeks ago, China firmly supports Russia and wants to push relations to an even higher level. Beijing wouldn't do this if it, unless it viewed the maintenance of a strong relationship with Russia as an important asset. Um, so to me, the question isn't, you know, does, does China feel this way? But the question is why? Um, and I think the most obvious answer is that Xi Jinping views Russia as invaluable in the protracted geostrategic competition that he expects to unfold in coming years and decades with the United States. Xi just underscored this at the 20th Party Congress uh, a couple weeks ago, that the United States, which was not mentioned by name, but we knew who he was talking about, is looking to contain and suppress China. And it's clear that Washington plays a central role in this very dark picture of China's external security environment that she painted, not just militarily, not just over Taiwan, uh, but also through employing a range of efforts in the economic space, in the tech domain, aimed at undermining China's development with the implicit potential to complicate the party's delivery on its promises to complete uh, national rejuvenation of the Chinese people and ultimately endanger the regime's hold on power. And Russia, despite all of its weaknesses, is really the only partner globally that can help China fend off the United States and compete with the United States in a number of really key ways. And so I'm going to focus on three areas. First, in the defense domain, China values Russia as a distraction, one that limits Washington's ability to make good on its oft-stated goal, articulated, I think, more clearly than ever in the recently published National Security Strategy and National Defense Strategy, to focus like a laser on China as our most important and consequential geopolitical challenger and principal national security threat. Now, certainly we do see the United States successfully shifting more resources and attention to address China, to address the Indo-Pacific. Um, that's evident more than ever this week, right, when we're watching what the administration's doing in Asia. But that acute threat from Russia that the Biden administration describes unquestionably keeps U.S. attention divided. It's focused on the European theater. It's also focused on Russian interference inside the United States, uh, which I'll address later. China recognizes that Russia's war and the potential for escalation there and elsewhere in Eastern Europe complicate matters for strategic planners in the Pentagon who are figuring out how to handle simultaneous contingencies across multiple regions, and also that China's defense partnership with Russia and the potential for joint planning and operations between them raises the prospect for coordinated actions and the need for the U.S. to deter two peer adversaries at once. Beijing knows that despite what has happened in Ukraine, much of Russia's military capabilities that the United States worries about most 
its submarines, its strategic and tactical nuclear arsenal, and cyber and electronic warfare capabilities are unaffected by the war and remain a potent threat to the United States. And specifically on nuclear forces, I think Chinese leaders are attuned to the fact not only that Russia remains a nuclear superpower, obviously, but that the United States is not confident in our ability to deter China, an aggressive Russia, or possibly a threat from both at the same time. The recently released Nuclear Posture Review, frankly, didn't shed much light here. It doesn't describe the need to deter both China and Russia simultaneously or how to do so. It simply states that a near simultaneous conflict with two nuclear armed states would constitute an extreme circumstance, which is not exactly reassuring. In the defense procurement area, Russia's value to China has waned in recent years, but Russia provides China with advanced weapon systems that enhance China's air defense, its anti-ship, anti-submarine capabilities, and military technical cooperation continues to grow between China and Russia, as have the frequency, scope, and complexity of joint military exercises. Russian armed forces are the PLA's most important foreign exercise partner, no question. And just in August, despite the war, thousands of Chinese forces were in Russia for the Vostok exercise. It's fair to argue that these exercises are still limited in terms of their jointness, but they have made strides on interoperability as well as on institutionalizing ties between the two militaries, and the expanding geographic scope of these exercises is significant as well. So I think all of this adds up to Beijing clearly valuing a strong and stronger defense relationship with Russia. Second, I want to move on to the diplomatic and economic front. So Russia's invasion has arguably single-handedly reinvigorated a U.S. alliance system that some had declared was on life support or brain dead, and Beijing has been, I think, unhappily surprised by the vigorous U.S. and NATO-led response to the invasion and the effort to punish Russia economically. But rather than forcing Xi to rethink the wisdom of aligning with Russia, I think Beijing's surprise at Washington's response and rallying of allies has only exacerbated the acute vulnerability that Chinese leaders feel when they consider the various sorts of crises we were just hearing about in the previous session and how they would play out over Taiwan. Vulnerabilities which Russia is critical to helping mitigate. And these concerns were reflected again in Xi's 20th Party Congress work report, which underscored repeatedly the need for security, not just in the military domain, but regarding energy, regarding food, and other critical inputs that Chinese leaders fear the U.S. might try to cut off, and which China, now Moscow's single biggest energy customer, could rely on Russia to provide across that 4,000-kilometer border they share and through the pipelines they cross it in the event of a crisis. This heightened vulnerability also raises Russia's utility as a partner in reducing reliance on the U.S.-centric global financial system in the wake of the financial measures undertaken against Moscow, including through de-dollarization. Now, cooperation between China and Russia in this de-dollarization domain is not new. Uh, Russia began to prioritize it uh, after sanctions following its 2014 annexation of Crimea, and then China began to pay more attention after the trade war with Washington kicked off in 2018. Actual cooperation has been limited thus far, but I think that China's fears about the ramifications of a largely U.S. dollar-denominated financial system and how the U.S. might leverage this have now been supercharged, and I think this is a really key area to watch. Lastly, in this space, partnership with Russia is also critical at the multilateral level. This is most evident, of course, on the UN Security Council, uh, where China's 13 most recent vetoes have all aligned with Russian vetoes. But it's also seen in a variety of foreign policy initiatives that China has undertaken to increase its influence globally relative to the U.S. and its allies, 
including in regional forums that exclude the United States and its allies. And I'm thinking primarily here of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is headquartered in China, and, and um, of which China is a, Russia is a core member, uh, the BRICS grouping uh, of leading developing uh, economies, both of which Chinese officials routinely make clear remain diplomatic priorities for them. Third, and the last section I want to get into here is the democracy and human rights domain. Now, when the China-Russia joint statement came out in February, just a couple weeks ahead of Russia's invasion, analysts were poring over it, and there was, I think, some dismissal of the fact that the entire first section of this joint statement, if you, anyone here recalls it, was on democracy and human rights. And it was dismissed by many as kind of the fluff before you got to the strategic meat of the document. But I think it's important to recognize the significance of that language, which was the summation of these two regimes' view of the strategic necessity of wresting away from the United States and its allies the right to use democracy and human rights as a cudgel, and which Chinese leaders view as a thinly veiled excuse to prevent China from achieving its rightful place as a fully risen great power at the heart of global governance. Now, we know there are clear differences in these two countries' governing systems and their ideologies, uh, or in the Russian case, perhaps absence of ideology. Um, but there are two these are two authoritarian states that are led by two increasingly personalist dictators who judge that the United States is hell-bent on undermining their rule and who share a vision of a less democratic world, a values-agnostic global order that is more hospitable to the continued uh, rule of each country's regime and, in China's case, one which is amenable to a CCP-led China as the leader of a revised international system. And Russia is of great value to China in its drive to eliminate the liberal normative underpinnings of the international system. Together, they challenge universal human rights and weaken rights protections at the UN, cloaked in supposed respect for sovereignty in the UN Charter. They're challenging the very meaning of human rights and democracy, as we saw in both the joint statement and then subsequent statements. Russia is a partner in shaping the global narrative to correct what Beijing views as America's unjust dominance of global discourse. They're doing this through common messaging and propaganda, uh, coordinated or not, um, and also through op information operations, and by using shared platforms to amplify each other's messaging. So the national security strategy underscored that China is the one country with the intent and the capability to revise the global order, and I fully agree with that, um, but I think Beijing also views Russia as a critical partner for China in achieving those aims. And one last point on this. I think in particular, China does value Russia's capability and intent to interfere in individual democracies and exacerbate divisions in open societies, including the United States, through a variety of means. Beijing, I think as most know, has not taken as aggressive an approach to, as, to, as Russia uh, to disinformation or to interference in political processes in the United States and other democracies, but it has adopted Russian-like tactics in the last couple of years, and I think developments in this area uh, of their partnership will be very important to watch uh, in the years and months going forward, particularly if U.S.-China ties continue to worsen. So we have these three areas in which Russia is a clear strategic asset to China. Uh, and I want to make one, one last point here uh, before turning it over to you. Um, this question of Russia as a junior partner. This used to be one of, if not the first item, raised in discussions that China-Russia watchers would have about what could cause problems in the relationship, right? The notion that Russia simply couldn't abide being a junior partner uh, in a relationship with China because that would flip just the traditional way in which uh, the relationship is gone and it was not, not something that, that, that Vladimir Putin could accept. But Russia now has nowhere else to go, right? And now China is squarely in the driver's seat in determining the future trajectory of the relationship. So I'd argue that this junior partner dynamic doesn't damage the value 
of, Russia's, uh, of Russia to China, but enhances it. Uh, and I think China is now a senior partner that potentially could make demands well beyond the kinds of things we'd already seen around driving a hard bargain on energy deals to gain concessions, if need be, on traditional points of friction with Russia or on collaboration in sensitive areas that Russia might otherwise in the past have refused. So we can look at areas uh, in, in potential disputes or frictions over Central Asia. We could look at China potentially leveraging um, its, its role in the relationship to get Russia to do things in its relations with India. If China-India relations were to get worse, uh, we could see some of these dynamics in the Arctic possibly. Uh, maybe Russia is pushed uh, to offer some more in terms of sensitive defense procurements uh, that it wouldn't otherwise want to give, access to Russian military facilities. This is all very speculative, obviously, but I think it goes to the point that there's an array of areas where Russia could potentially be an even more loyal and valuable partner in Russia's fight against the United States, given the dynamics of where this relationship is heading, and it could sacrifice its interest because China is really the only game in town for Russia. So beyond what I've laid out in terms of Russia as an asset to China, there's still headroom left, I think, in terms of strategic value to Beijing of strong ties with Russia. Um, so I will stop there. Thank you, Dave. So Yun, over to you. Start by applauding for David because uh, he made such an eloquent case that Russia is and will remain an asset for China. And I don't think that's really the question. We all know that Russia will remain as an asset for China. But the question is how much? And also between the balance of Russia being an asset and Russia being a liability, what is the net assessment here? Um, so we all know why China thinks Russia is, uh, is an asset. There's economic reasons, there's strategic reasons, there's also um, democracy and human rights perspective about international, international relations. And by February 24th, I think the Chinese leader was still believing that we're going to have, uh, China and Russia are going to have a no-limit cooperation uh, a relationship. But the question is, what has changed? What has changed in the, nine, in the past eight and a half months that will pose the question that does China still view, uh, view Russia as a pure asset or as a net asset? Well, what is some of the perceptions and assessment about Russia being more of a liability? And then we can decide that whether it's a net asset or it's a net, net, net liability. And I agree that China will build a stronger relationship with Russia. But the question is, how is stronger defined? Is, Russia going, is China going to import more crude oil from Russia? Absolutely. If you look at the trade number, be prepared. It's going to be a pretty big hike this year. China is not only importing more crude oil from Russia by volume, because of the price increase, the value of the Chinese crude import, uh, import from Russia is going to be significantly higher than, uh, than last year. But does that suggest a stronger relationship with Russia? How do we define, how do we judge that the relationship is stronger? That's another question. And last but not least, I think there are also two questions that we don't yet know the answer. The first one is, what is going to happen to the, to the war in Ukraine? We seem to get a sense that Russia is not doing so well, but what exactly will be the end result of the, of the war, which will have a significant impact over how China sees Russia and how China strategizes on this relationship? And the second factor, which David did mention, is that what will happen to China-Russia relations if Russia indeed loses? We assume that, well, then China will be in the, in the driver's seat and Russia will have no option 
But has that been the behavior pattern that we have observed from Russia? That Russia just gives up and completely listen to the only uh, the only buyer in town? That doesn't seem to be the historical record. And there are those indicators that we can look at to see whether this relationship has become more dominated by China. But we don't know that yet. So what I will try to present to you is how China's attitude towards Russia has changed. We all knew what it used to look like, but after the nine months of war in Ukraine, is China still sees Russia, seeing Russia in the same light or in the same way? And my argument is that subtle but important changes have gradually but surely come to Beijing's policy towards Russia. It is not a 180-degree change. It is not even a 90-degree change. The strategic competition with the United States, like uh, David has elaborated, remains to be China's top consideration. And Russia will always be seen as, well, a useful and somewhat manageable instrument in that context. However, under the seemingly neutral statement, less in important policy reassessment, and I call attitudinal change towards Russia. These are not at least reflected in the two recent cases, or the two signs of change, as I call them. The first sign is the demotion of Le Yucheng, three months after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It had been discussed many times by people. Some see him as a scapegoat for Xi, as Le Yucheng was only following the policy direction that Xi had decided. If anything, Le has been blamed for not giving Xi a fair warning about Russia's imminent invasion of Ukraine, or he had not been aware of such a plan to begin with, which means that he was either incompetent or disloyal. So the result is that no matter what, um, his performance on this particular issue is regarded as uh, unsatisfactory, and it does pose a question uh, or pose uh, embarrassment to Xi's authority. Le's demotion from a different perspective reflects Xi Jinping's shifting positions on Russia. To remove Le is now seen as to reorient China's previous pursuit of the highest level of alignment with Russia. It also means that the Russian gun in the foreign policy apparatus is no longer holding Xi Jinping's ears. Three out of the five Central Committee members from the foreign policy apparatus have a European background or have a Europe background. Two of them were spokesperson of the, used to be the spokesperson of the foreign ministry. The shift suggests China's own pivot from Russia towards Europe, an emphasis on public diplomacy and a battle over the international discourse. The second, and I call it even more significant sign of change, is Xi's commitment to jointly oppose the use of nuclear weapons or the threat to use nuclear weapons during his meeting with German Chancellor Scholz on November 4th. The version published by the Chinese Foreign Ministry reads, the international community should jointly oppose the use of use of or the threat to use nuclear weapons, advocate for the unacceptability of the use of nuclear weapons and nuclear wars, and prevent a nuclear crisis in the Euro-Asia Euro continent. The position is significant for several reasons. First, China's position on this matter has completely changed. In early March, when the war first broke out, Xi Jinping was going to have a virtual summit with two European leaders uh, on March 8th. And before that summit, Europe pushed for China to either jointly or unilaterally make a statement about the unacceptability of use of nuclear weapons, and China refused. So 
At that time, China said no, but now looking at eight months later, China's position is completely reversed. On this matter, China's shifting position, China's shifting position suggests that China is now okay with publicly taking positions that it knows would antagonize Russia. It suggests less willingness to accommodate Russia and cover for Russia, and it suggests less respect to Russia's bottom lines, given that Russia will most likely resort to escalation to de-escalate. The public nature of the Chinese statement also takes away the Russian leverage, and it, does not, it will be difficult for Moscow not to see this as a step in the back. Chinese interlocutors have been quietly telling their Russian counterparts in bilateral dialogues that, Russia, uh, that China opposes the use of nukes. What has been shocking for them is that Russia's response was, reuse of nukes is really not that bad. Especially if it's tactical nuclear weapons, we can control the contamination. I think the Chinese do not believe that the use of nukes is imminent, but they were still appalled by the Russian perspective on this. From the protracted war of attrition in uh, Ukraine, two of the previous Chinese beliefs of Russia are validated and reconfirmed. The first one is, Russia is a country torn between great power ambition and the lack of great power capability. And the second assessment is that Russia is a destructive power and only uses a strategy of chaos. So what China has been disillusioned from the war in Ukraine, however, is much more significant than this validation of these two beliefs. While China used to believe that Russia, um, used, to believe, used to believe that Russia under Putin has superior military strategies and capabilities, the reality of the Ukraine war certainly tells a different story. It has demonstrated many weaknesses of the Russian military force, including resources, mobilization, training, technology, you name it. The only inevitable conclusion is that Russia is not the strong military power as we believed. Meanwhile, the Chinese also began to challenge the conventional wisdom that Russia is good at strategy. Strategy defined as diplomatic maneuver, strategic manipulation, and hybrid warfare. And the Chinese believe that, well, the previous beliefs that Russia could use strategic maneuver to punch above its weight what Beijing used to look up to Russia for. Now it is disillusioned by Putin's lack of preparation, resources, and options to navigate the way out of the current quagmire. The reassessment has led to a key attitudinal change that now when the Chinese policy community refers to Russia, it is with a much less sense of respect. There's even a sense of scorn and disrespect Referring to the current situation, some of, the, some of the Chinese interlocutors would say that Russia has no sense of shame anymore, which is not something that the Chinese used to say about Russia. The earlier sense of sympathy about Russia is gone because when the Chinese were sympathetic and they were defend, defending Russia on the NATO expansion during the earlier months of the war, for the Chinese, NATO expansion might have provided the justification to the war, but Russia's losing the war and embarrassing China at the same time is not justifiable. Like the Chinese have said from the very beginning of the war, the only bigger crime than starting a war is to start one and lose it. Two things are clear about China's future positions. 
The first one is that China's attitude towards Russia shifts within the battlefield development. When Russia was doing relatively well before summer, China's assessment of Russia was much less negative. If somehow Russia is able to turn things around miraculously and came out of the war as a, as a winner, China will be more careful in the, in the public's display of displeasure and, calcul and is calculous about, uh, about dissing Russia once in a while. The second assessment is that China will not abandon Russia. Even Russia loses in the Ukraine war, China will build a stronger relationship with Russia with more cooperation, quote, quote. Is this because Russia remains a useful instrument in China's effort to counter the United States? With a weaker Russia, China hopes for more ability to influence Moscow's decision-making and rein in its destructive behavior, but good luck on that. The public opposition to the use of nukes is a good example in this regard. But the question is, is Moscow going to take it? Or as we believe, Moscow will have no option but to take it. History does not really support that, um, su support that argument because if you look at what happened in 2014, during the Crimea, Crimea crisis, Russia did offer China Yamal one. But four years later, Russians decided, well, we didn't get a good, de good enough deal. So therefore, the deal China got for Yamal two has been significantly less favorable than Yamal one. So is that attitude or is this shift of power going to be permanent enough to change Russia's calculus and its behavior towards China. While China, well, Russia has been called China's junior partner for some time, the legacy of Sovietization during the earlier period of the People's Republic of China has consistently had a psychological impact over the Chinese leadership and population, coloring their judgment about Russia's strengths and weaknesses in a pro-Russia favorable direction. The war in Ukraine might in fact be the psychological turning point in China's mentality about Russia. That China are finally looking at Russia as a power it is, not a power that China thought it is. And what that means is that this awakening is already obvious among the Chinese elites and the policy circle, and it will gradually spread to the public, especially if Beijing decides to tone down its pro-Russia propaganda as it has. The Chinese do expect the bilateral trade to grow in the near term, like I mentioned, uh, especially considering the high cost of energy price. But I think the Chinese interlocutors and, and analysts are also more sober about the future growth of Sino-Russia trade. And there's going to be a cap to how much it can grow. Because if you look at China's energy projection, China aims towards a carbon emission peak by 2035 and aims for the carbon neutrality by 2060, which means what Russia can provide in terms of China's whole energy charge is only going to decline in the long run. And if you look at the bilateral economic integration, what else does Russia have to offer? And I'll just end, end, end there and I'll look forward to the discussion. Thank you. Great, thank you, Yun. Uh, maybe um, Given the fact that we covered so much ground, let me at least start by asking a question uh, to uh, both of them about um, how do we unpack sort of China's views on Russia when we're talking about so many different elements of China, right? There's Xi Jinping, there's his team, and then there's, of course, the general public and Chinese academic, uh, Chinese elites. And I know you and you, um, you, you engage in extensive track two discussions with them. If you could share with us 
what are some of the views that you've been hearing? It's, you were already sharing some of those in your, uh, in your opening comments, but what are, you, what are the views that you're hearing from Chinese academics, and how do you see their views in, in terms of being reflected in, in terms of both Xi's views, or at least the top leadership's views on Russia? And then for Dave, if you wanted to weigh in here in terms of what you see as if there are any gaps or discrepancies between these different views. In China's Russia policy community, there have always been these two camps. So there are these strategists who are not Russia experts. And these strategists look at China's external relations from a grand strategy point of view that, yes, the United States is the biggest, is the biggest threat for China, therefore China has to align with Russia. And then the, there are these Russia specialists. And without many exception, Russia specialists usually hold a very negative and a pessimistic view about Russia's long-term future and the future of the China-Russia relation. They're also the ones who advocate that Russia uses a strategy of chaos. It's a disruptive power instead of a cooperative power. It represents a fundamentally different approach to international system than from China. Because remember, China only wants to reform the international system, not to create a new one, but through reform. But Russia uses much more disruptive and destructive approach towards that, uh, towards that uh, the same question. So within the Chinese policy community, by the end of the day, they all look at what Xi Jinping says, right? So Xi Jinping has to decide if he, and I think his personal preference, which is the leadership factor, plays a huge, well, I would even say the determining role in China's relationship with, uh, with, with, with Russia. But what has happened since the beginning of the war in Ukraine the two examples that I mentioned is the demotion of Lo Yucheng, who used to be the most popular candidate to replace Wang Yi, and now he's the number two of the National Administration of Radio. <laughs> still a, still a uh, vice ministerial position, so still very enviable. Um, and the, also the Chinese public statement that came from Xi himself that China opposes the use of nuclear weapons, which he also mentioned in his meeting with, uh, with President Biden, but he embedded in a, in a four jointly instead of say it out loud clearly. But China's position is, is, is very clear. It still will pursue a close relationship with Russia because if you look at Li Zhanshu's um, visit to Russia at the beginning of September and what he told, what he told the Duma and how the Russians leaked his talk to, the, uh, to YouTube, you have to wonder, um, you can see that China is still making an effort to engage Russia and to keep the cooperation going. But on the other hand, I think Xi Jinping's change of attitude through the, exa the, the examples that I mentioned also has an impact over how the policy community will, will make their assessment. So I'm not saying that China somehow will see Russia as a complete liability moving forward. But I do think that the Chinese are having a disillusionment about Russia and what it means for China's future strategy. Well, that was great. I don't know if I have terribly much to add on that. I would just say, I mean, I think, you know, in my engagements with Chinese academics or diplomats on, this, on these questions, really, you know, before the invasion, but especially after it and the last nine months, um, it's been consistent that there's been an effort to convince, uh, you know, think tankers and others that they're talking to, um, that uh, China does not view itself as anywhere near uh, in an alliance with Russia, uh, that you know, China has significant qualms about Russian actions, um, that there's frustration, um, especially earlier in the year when uh, the Biden administration was um, you know, talking about the potential for China to uh, deliver weapons uh, to Russia and, and engaging European partners uh, with that information. 
Uh, there was significant frustration about that uh, from the, the folks that I was talking to. And a real desire to kind of, you know, say, you know, do not think of us in this way. Understand that there's a real split, and use that word, that continues to abide in the China-Russia relationship. Um, so I, you know, there, there's kind of some news made in, in the last week that, you know, of Chinese officials um, or, you know, unnamed uh, Chinese diplomats or officials are talking about how, uh, you know, Xi Jinping uh, was, was unaware of, uh, of the Russian invasion um, and that, that Putin was going to do this in February. I, I, I don't know. I've, you've been, I've been hearing that for a while now. That, to me, is not, that's been the line. So I, I don't necessarily believe it, but I don't think anything has changed in that regard. So I'd say that that's kind of what, and I agree with, with you, and I think it's, you know, that, that's kind of your line and your approach and your, your take. It's hard to differ, differentiate what people actually think in the privacy of their own homes versus what, you know, they're going to say to, uh, to people like us um, in, in these engagements. But I think it's dependent on, on, their, on their positions, right? And so, and that happens uh, higher up the chain as well. As you mentioned, Li Jianshu used to be, you know, number three in China's system, um, saying these things um, uh, to the Duma uh, in uh, just, uh, I think, a week or two ahead of the statement uh, that Putin made uh, at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization about understanding China's concerns, right? So I think it, it really goes to this point that, you know, China really is trying to shape the message depending on the audience that it's talking to. We see that, and this is not surprising, right? I mean, every, every country does this. But uh, when we look at what China's doing in, in Europe, when we look at what China's doing when it, when it engages with with, um, you know, uh, at a 1.5 or track two level uh, in the United States and elsewhere, I think it's very different personally than what um, is believed at the top and, what, and the valuation that continues to persist of Russia as a key strategic partner from Xi Jinping down. And, um, you know, I think the, the examples that you laid out in terms of the, the slight shifting we might be seeing, to me, I put a little less value on those. Um, I don't particularly, think that the shift on the nuclear threat language was that significant. I think, I mean, it, it is significant in the sense that, yes, China has been very cautious in saying anything critical of Russia over the last nine months. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's, it's something. But, you know, the language on, you know, the approach to we can never fight a nuclear war is something that China says all the time. Um, and I think, you know, we just saw Wang's meeting with Sergei Lavrov on Tuesday Again, kind of twisting it around back again to saying we praise Russia for holding the same position that, uh, that we reaffirm that a nuclear war can never be fought and that, and that threats, threats can never be put out there. So um, I don't see that necessarily as indicating that there's some major shift that's going on from the top down in terms of the valuation of, of Russia, despite the fact that, as I said and as you said, Yun, um, you know, there's an understanding that, that Russia's war in Ukraine has not gone to plan, that it has not served China's interests in many ways, but I don't think that that... Um, means that uh, at, the, at the kind of fundamental level from Xi Jinping and those who are actually determining Chinese uh, foreign policy and strategic decision making, there hasn't been a change, I think, in, in the valuation of China as a really important strategic partner or whatever we put in the, in the proposition. Sure. So uh, I do have one more question for the two of you before I open it up to Q&A. I know I'm cutting into the Q&A time right now, but I think it's an important one. So if you noted the proposition that the two of them were asked to discuss is actually a little different than the proposition that we asked you to vote on, because what we asked them to discuss is Beijing's views, and what we asked you all to vote on is, is Russia a net strategic asset? So I did want also Dave and you to uh, weigh in on from your personal perspective, obviously as, as someone sitting in D.C., do you think Russia is actually a net strategic asset to China? And maybe I could add one other thing to that is, so if China were to start distancing itself from Russia, would 
would China suddenly be able to improve its relations with Europe, with the United States, or would it not really change very much? So I know, hard question I just posed and dropped on you, Dave, but I would really love your thoughts, and then, you, and then we'll open it up to Q&A. Yeah, I mean, this is a, 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 I'm glad you raised that because I noticed the difference and it's significant because um, we're talking about what Beijing views and we're also talking about um, the question of whether a strong relationship is important versus just the value of, of Russia as a strategic partner, which is something else we can potentially talk about because you touched on this a little bit. You can want to have a strong relationship with a country even if you think it's a shambles because <laughs> to go any other way is inconceivable and I think that applies to how China sees Russia. Um, but I, I mean, I, Bonnie, I think that that, that's a hard question to answer because it's a hard, you know, when we think of, you know, we can't, we can't conceive of China's actions um, ever as those of a purely, you know, rationalist, political science-y type of rational actor um, in that kind of context. We can't do that to any state. But I think when we think about why, you know, Xi Jinping and the, and, and the Chinese Communist Party value Russia as a key strategic partner, it's because of the deep vulnerabilities and fears that I mentioned that kind of really permeate uh, the party state that were laid out uh, in, in, in the work report by Xi Jinping and have been laid out uh, previously. And this sense that the United States really is this principal adversary that will continue to be so for decades to come. Um, and I think going beyond, again, what if we're kind of taking an objective look at this and say, well, you know, it's a great power competition China needs Russia. They see the United States as their competitor, therefore they're going to side with, with Russia. I think because of those similarities in the regimes um, between uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, their deep fear of the fact that the United States not just wants to compete with, 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 with Russia, with China, but wants to fundamentally overthrow those regimes. And I think that that is a true, that's something that each leader actually believes. And when they talk about color revolutions, uh, they're talking about not just what the United States, they believe, has done to uh, undermine authoritarian governance uh, in their peripheries, but also with the ultimate goal of undermining their own regime's uh, control on power. Um, so I think that's why it's really important to understand that, that you know, uh, if, if it were, I guess to answer your question, if, it, if we were looking at this from a purely, you know, what is, what is the value to a, you know, uh, a Chinese regime that, that was not as concerned about its own maintenance of power, then I think that absolutely that would change my take on the value of Russia as an enduring strategic partner. Um, but I still think I would fall. I still think I would fall on the yes side because you know if you look at where U.S.-China relations are going, um, it's hard to make a case that Xi Jinping should pull back uh, from Russia when, in in the current situation, they really don't have many other uh, partners to turn to. And as I laid out, as we both laid out, uh, Russia is is really important across the defense, political, economic domains, even in its significantly weakened state? Great answer. I'll see what I can add. Um, I guess I'll say a, a, a typical Washington policy analyst answer is it depends. Um, and it depends on a couple of things. I think it depends on, well, now we know that Russia doesn't have many options coming to international financing, international cooperation, economic opportunities, market. Um, but does that give China the control over the relationship? To what extent China can control Russia beha Russia's behavior? Especially those behaviors that China will deem as damaging for China's national interest, right? So if China has more ability to, to, uh, to influence Russia's decision making, and Russia is seen as less of a troublemaker for China's grand strategy or external strategy, 
I think Russia will be seen as a net asset. It really depends on how much damage Russia will be, will be imposing on China. Uh, it also depends on what options that China believes it has. Currently, it doesn't see many options. That one, one, one permanent answer that you will get from the, uh, from, from the Chinese officials on this uh, pro-Russian neutrality or this uh, seeming neutrality, but really not neutrality position after the breaking of the, uh, the Ukraine war is that, well, by the end of the day, it's geopolitics, right? Well, the United States is still on our, still on our throat. And just by that position, we see China, we see Russia as our friend. So that really comes to the, to the option question. But I would say that on the option question, the Chinese are also, remember what I've talked about in terms of China's pivot towards Europe. So Europe's preference is beginning to play a bigger role in China's approach to, to Russia at the same time. So what options we have, maybe we don't have the option of US not being hostile to China, uh, but maybe there is an option that Europeans' preference and Europeans' policy can be shaped. And that's another factor that I think that uh, influence, can be, uh, influence can be exerted. But um, as long as China sees the United States as the most consequential national security threat, it's not going to abandon Russia. But how close that relationship will be, that's a, that's a separate question. Great, thank you. Now let me open up the floor to questions. We'll start with questions in the room. I think I'd like to start with two at a time in the room at this point. So uh, I see two right here. Gil Rosman, uh, editor of the Asan Forum. I think this is a terrific presentation, very interesting exchange. And somehow I agree with both speakers, although there are some real differences. But I think what's somewhat missing is how tense Sino-Russian relations have been for much of the past 10 years. A cat and mouse game, give and take, uh, lots of, on both sides, lots of distrust and uncertainty, and how one of the reasons Russia may have gone into Ukraine was to try to get more equal relations with China. That this was, and the Chinese understand that Russia has been trying to figure out a way to overcome this, excuse me, the junior partnership effect. And so I'm wondering, how you put this in some perspective of the Russians think the Chinese are terribly arrogant and they're very worried about what comes with Chinese dominance. And the Chinese uh, keep ignoring Russian interest. For instance, what they did in India was a real attack on the Russian notion of a greater European, a Eurasian partnership. Uh, shocked the Russians uh, in 2020. So how do you put this in this context? Hello, my name is uh, Tova. I'm a Norwegian journalist. Um, I have a question. Uh, you haven't mentioned uh, the United Nations and the voting in the General Assembly over um, condemning uh, Russia's warfare in Ukraine. And China has abstained in both cases, and it has been viewed as kind of a rebuke to Russia that China hasn't aligned itself and voting with Russia in, uh, in the General Assembly and the Security Council. Um, how do you assess this? And regarding your shift in power between the two countries, can you also see that that will happen, for instance, in the Security Council, where China over the last 20 years, I would say, have been sort of uh, following the Russian lead? Can you see that shifting now and that we can ch see changes in pattern of voting, for instance, over the, the civil war in Syria? So I, I mean, I, I think that it's a, it's a fair point and it's a, it's a good one to make to underscore how um, tense relations between China and Russia have 
remained, despite the fact that I would argue uh, over the last 10 years, and especially since 2014, I think you have seen a significant deepening of that relationship. Uh, and we've already talked about this, you know, across the military, across the economic domains, as well as uh, in the multilateral domain and, and, and in regards to revising the global order. Um, I think that that's a reflection, as, as you know, and as many of you know, of the fact that you know, there is no love lost between China and Russia, and there's obviously a history there of, of conflict and a history of racism and a history of fundamental you know, cultural disconnect. Um, I would say, though, that I, I think actually you know, a lot of these areas where you know, we've tried to look for where might there be um, you know, points of friction that fundamentally unravel the relationship and cause it to not deepen in the future, I've actually been you know, struck by the reverse a little bit in the sense that they have been able to manage these differences, right? I mean, you have a China that is unquestionably becoming more influential, for instance, in, in Russia's you know, traditional sphere, if we have to use that term, in Central Asia, um, and trying to manage that. And as I mentioned, you know, in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, trying to not step on Russia's toes, even as China's particularly economic influence, but increasingly political influence that always comes with it, um, grows. Um, I think, you know, you've seen that, as you mentioned, India. I think that's a really interesting dynamic. Um, obviously, I'm sure Russia was not happy with, with the conflict that we've seen at the China-India uh, border and China's aggression there, but I think that similarly, um, the, despite the fact that Russia continues to have a very um, productive uh, defense, um, defense and, and military uh, equipment relationship with, with India, uh, that has seemed not to really fundamentally cause rifts in the relationship. You could talk about any number of issues, right? I mean, Russia's relationship with, with Vietnam, you could talk about the Arctic. All of these things that we've looked at and said, well, is that going to be a problem? They've managed to paper over it. They've managed to push past it. Um, they've managed to, you know, at least, at least in theory, tie up the Belt and Road Initiative with the Eurasian Economic Union. So I've been struck that, that um, despite all of the, the problems that we know exist between the two countries and the friction points, um, I think China has bent over backwards to try not to offend Russia, to try not to stick its nose in the fact that it is now very clearly the junior partner in the relationship. The question to me is going forward whether that obtains, whether that holds, and, and whether China is, as I mentioned in my remarks, going to try to push its advantage in, in certain areas when it determines that it really needs to in order to, to serve its strategic interests. I think that I think that remains to be seen, but it's something to watch closely. I agree with David. I think on the issue of the, the divergence of their interests and the convergence of their interests, it has been a permanent theme of, of China-Russia relations, right? The question is which one is the main theme and the uh, which one overwhelms well, which one? And I think currently, uh, especially under Xi, if you look at the, the year of 2014, has been defined a year of abnormal acceleration of China-Russia relations because of the U.S. pivot to Asia and also because of the, the Crimea crisis really brought them onto the same page. And since then, I think their determination has been convergence of their relationship is more important than the divergence of their relations. Um, yeah, they, well, they, they have this agreement on Arctic. Well, who should pay? Well, should China? Should China finance, for example, upgrade of the infrastructure along the Russian nor northern sea route without asking for equity? knowing that the commercial viability is probably not going to transpire in the next 20 years. Well, the Chinese are just not going to go for it. And on Taiwan, I think the Chinese also know very clearly that when Putin was asked a question about Taiwan, he said, oh, well, the Chinese can figure it out. They can use economic integration to achieve unification, which is not necessarily a satisfactory answer for, for China. And then on the issue of India, 2020, of course, was tense, but I think the Chinese will also talk about, well, back in 2017, when we were having the Daklam standoff, we almost 
three months plus, Russia was watching the whole time. Did they even bother to to put a word, to put a good word between China and India? So what kind of partner is that? So um, for for each of this vein, I'm sure you can trust, track into the historical agony or the grievances, dissatisfactions from outsides. But it doesn't mean that they don't see the United States as a common threat and as the most overwhelming and the most definitive um, well, factor in their, in, their, in their relationship. So they're going to have frictions down the road, there's no doubt. But is the friction going to change the nature of their alignment? I think so far, I don't see that. I agree with David, I don't see that. On the UN question, I don't think the Chinese voting record at the UN Security Council is to support Russia. I think it's to support what China wants to achieve. So down the road, if they still share the same perspective, see the common interest, I think they're still going to vote, vote in the same, uh, on the same plate. Thank you. Uh, we'll take one or two uh, questions from online. Brian? Yeah, so uh, I'll start with one uh, from Trey at Sandia National Labs, uh, which is that as the war in Ukraine has developed, we've also seen Iran support Russia in various ways, and this we've seen that relationship grow. What are your views on greater China, Russia, and Iran trilateral cooperation in the future, and its potential value for similar uh, reasons you already mentioned in your discussions? Okay. Any of you want to weigh in on this? Well, maybe I'll try it first. I think. Um, it's a good question. I feel like you know the the we're watching closely all of us where the China um, Iran relationship goes, right? I think a lot was made of the 25 year agreement uh, that they um, signed up to not that long ago, but uh, they, the devil remains in the details, and it's unclear exactly, um, you know, um, it's unclear exactly if, if there's going to be a lot made good on the kind of pledges uh, that are in that agreement. Um, the other factor that always you know complicates the Iran dynamic, of course, is China um, has um, much tighter relations, actually, with, uh, with the GCC countries, the Gulf Cooperation Council countries, with Saudi, uh, and with those you know, countries in, in the region that are uh, not uh, friendly towards Iran, and trying to straddle that, that balance um, is one that I think we, we know that, 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 that China uh, is going to face going forward. Thus far, they've seemingly managed uh, to do so. Um, but, but as the relationships uh, shift, as China becomes more engaged and more influential in the Middle East, which is something we're seeing not just in the investment and economic domain and certainly in the energy space, which is, of course, uh, what China cares about most uh, when, it, when it comes to the Middle East still, um, I think it's also, there's also China getting more involved potentially uh, in, in the security domain. There's been talk about, about potential basing um, uh, for China in, in the region. So all of these dynamics, I think, are at play when we think about, you know, where is the China-Iran relationship going to go? How much deeper is it going to get? The energy dynamic will continue to be there. Uh, China continues to want to play a uh, seemingly responsible, positive role on, on resumption of talks uh, around Iran's nuclear program. Um, but I think, um, I think there are still significant limitations to it, and I think that we shouldn't expect, you know, this kind of trilateral China-Russia-Iran dynamic uh, to be to be nearly as important as what we're talking about in terms of the China-Russia bilateral relationship going forward. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is that all said, um, when we look at what China, Russia, and Iran are collectively doing in terms of trying to undermine democracies, Iran especially in its own region, but but you know China and Russia globally, as I as I talked about a little earlier, that I think is is something to fundamentally watch. And, and in this context of you know, the democracies versus autocracies construct that the Biden administration has put out there, watching where, where those relationships go and, and the threat that it poses to open societies 
uh, is, I think, another thing to watch. I don't have a lot to add. I'll just say that, well, if you look at the trial of the cooperation, uh, what is the substance so far, right? Mm -hmm. um, they have had a single, several joint naval exercises in the Black Sea area, and yeah. but I'm having a difficult time trying to recall what other uh, what other things are in there. <laughs> All three countries are in the um, in the, the the Chinese track on Afghanistan. The minister, four ministers meeting of Afghanistan's neighbors, um, but not a lot of cooperation, at least not trilateral ones under that under that framework. Uh, well, I think the Chinese are still looking whether the JCPOA is going to have any life um, left, which is, I believe, part of the reason why what they promised in the 25-year blueprint, um, a lot of it is not being implemented. So they're, they're on paper, they look great, but coming to a specific implementation plan at the timetable, I just don't see one. Uh, and last but not least, Xi Jinping's next visit apparently will be, there's a planned visit to Saudi. Uh, China Arab summit that is supposed to happen before the end of this year, so we're still counting six weeks left. Um, so, so yeah, there is a balancing act, but I think the Chinese would place more importance on GCC uh, in terms of the, uh, the the strategic alignment in the region. Okay, thank you. Let's take another round of questions from in the room. So I see, okay, one, two, three, and then we'll uh, do another round in a second. Thank you so much. I'm Benny. I'm a student at Georgetown University. And I wanted to ask, in this discussion, we talked a lot about um, Russia either being a strategic asset for China, but I wanted to ask you, other than their Russia's role in you know, fighting Ukraine right now, what do you see can happen that can make Russia a strategic and a net liability for China in the near future? Thank you. Um, hello, thank you so much. My name is uh, Shreya. I'm a student at uh, George Washington University. Uh, my question is about what, uh, if any, specific U.S. policies you can think of that have pushed the China-Russia relationship and uh, pushed the two countries to be closer. And I had two specifics in mind. I was thinking of U.S. nuclear strategy, uh, particularly in the nuclear posture. We did not reevaluate the first use doctrine. And uh, secondly, sanctions. Do you think sanctions have played into China's hand as it helps countries to circumvent them in the case of North Korea or uh, Iran? Thank you so much. Thank you. My name is Emma and I'm a student at American University. Kissinger has expressed that Russia has the potential to become a Western ally to balance against growing Chinese power and has suggested that in the midst of the war in Ukraine, we should not lose sight of this potential long-term relationship. Do you believe that in the long-term this partnership is possible and should that affect the way that the West is handling our response to Ukraine and the situation there? Thank you. Three very uh, different questions, and I know we probably won't have time to answer all three of them fully, so uh, maybe I'll turn to Yun first, whichever sure. ones you want to answer, and then Dave, since you've been going first, Dave, the last couple of rounds. Uh, I think coming to the liability questions, um, I have a difficult time to think that what Russia would do, but I think if Russia does decide to use nuclear weapons, they will put China in a, in a, in a very awkward situation, but not absolute liability, because China already said that, well, we oppose it, and if Russia goes ahead and use it, then it will, the question will be, what next question is, what is China going to do about it? And presumably, if China really sticks to its position, it will have to support a certain level of sanctions, which they probably would not want to. 
So I think that is not turning Russia into China's complete liability, but it's going to uh, agonize China's position. On U.S. policy, like I mentioned, the year of 2014 is like the watershed year. Look at what happened in Crimea, what happened with pivot to, to Asia. I think China and Russia have the shared common perspective coming to a long list of things. Domestic governance, international system, uh, democracy and human rights. So those shared perspectives with or without U.S. policy, I think, is going to, is going to stay. And it's not just U.S. policy, I feel, that this is a... This is a this is a common perspective about liberal international order, right? Um, so that that's goes back to the, the convergence question. Um, well, there are a lot of convergence between the two, two countries' national interests. And it's not necessarily because of what the U.S. does, what it does not do. Um, last, the, the, the strategic triangle. Oh, well, I think I always wonder what Kissinger is going to say next. I feel that, that for, for U.S., well, we have been debating about this question that how do we provide, uh, prevent a China-Russia collusion, right? And I always feel that question is so weird because we want, to, we want to punish China, we want to punish Russia, we also want them not to work together. So that's like, we also want a unicorn. Um, so it's, 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 I think we have made a very clear choice that we're not going to pick one over the other. For the time being, we're going to, we're going to take both of them on. Um, but there are specific implications which I will leave today. <laughs> I think you covered all of that very well. I, I think I would just add on the, the net liability. It's very hard to um, to kind of think through what would make Russia such a net liability that that would that would change um, Beijing's view of Russia as a strategic asset. And, I, and as I kind of hinted at earlier, I think this language that we had in our proposition about um, a strong relationship with Russia as a net asset. I think even if um, you know, China were to begin to view Russia as of diminished strategic value for any number of reasons, it would still be true that China's leaders would still need to have a strong relationship with the country um, because what's the alternative, right? I mean, if you, I don't see how China, when you look at China's ge unfortunate geography and you look at all the problems it has around its periphery, and we've already talked about this a little bit, I mean, the, the value of having a, a fairly quiet 4,000-kilometer border with Russia uh, ever since they settled their dispute uh, like two decades ago um, really can't be overstated. So um, I really can't uh, foresee a, a situation where Russia you know, becomes a liability, but uh, regardless, uh, China decides, well, it's, it's now in our interest to, to pull away and to have a weak or an even poor relationship with Russia. I mean, imagine the situation in, in which you, know, you have a, a Russia that um, is um, either you know destabilized, which could be a potential result of China having a weak relationship with Russia because of how important the relationship is to Russia now. Uh, imagine a Russia that is more uh, aligned with the United States, or at the very least, less friendly um, to to China, um, and and what that would mean in terms of um, Washington's ability potentially to focus more of its energy even uh, on on China's rise. Oh, thank. Um, so, so I think, you know, regardless of, of, of how much of a liability Russia becomes, um, and we can, I mean, I guess we could posit, you know, nuclear use by Russia, um, we could posit, uh, you know, Putin falling from power and what that could mean, but I think in most cases, even in, in a situation where Russia's of less value, it's still important for China to have that strong relationship. Um, and then, um, just on the policies, I agree with you on what, when, what's pushed China and Russia relations closer. I mean, you can certainly look at, obviously, from the Russia side, all the sanctions uh, since 
2014, but things were already kind of trending in this direction, really, since the, uh, since the end of the Cold War, and then arguably, uh, especially um, after, uh, you know, 2001, 2002. Um, I think, you know, if you look at, um, obviously, where the U.S.-China relationship has gone, um, partly, yes, uh, you know, U.S. actions, we can't think of this as a one-way street, uh, the, the pivot to Asia, U.S. focus uh, more on, on the South China Sea, U.S. focus on our allies there, uh, arguably more focus on Taiwan. But obviously under Xi Jinping, we've seen a, a more uh, aggressive approach uh, in East Asia. Um, and I think that, that this has been a kind of dynamic, a spiraling dynamic between the U.S. and China. And that has caused um, poorer relations with the United States uh, for both China and Russia. And that, as we've discussed, necessarily draws China and Russia um, closer together. I don't necessarily think it's nuclear strategy or the no first use policy, which you know has been there um, for a long time. So uh, I think it's it's more of these dynamics that for both of these countries, uh, they really are being pushed together because the relationship with the United States um, for bilateral reasons uh, has gotten so bad. Thank you. So I know um, we are probably, we're near the end of our uh, time here and I know we're keeping you all from your afternoon and your lunch, but I do wanna do, before we, uh, we wrap up the session, I do wanna do the voting again. So um, again, if you can, uh, can you, Please vote the voting slide, that's right. Uh, so you can vote online or you can vote via a text message. Um, so for voting via text message, please text 22333 with your views. If you After you do that, A is for agree. Oh, yeah, B is for disagree. Uh, so let's just wait a couple of minutes, but um, this is an almost reversal of what we saw at the beginning of the day. <laughs> okay, so with that, let me just offer any final closing thoughts from both uh, or either of our panelists, if you have any, um, after seeing the polls and, and as we're wrapping things up. I'm not, I see you. Okay. We're the same thing, I think. And that's why, and that's why it shifted. Um, no, I, I mean, I think that obviously what this means, um, and I, I think is and we touched on this a little bit earlier, is that the United States and our allies need to, um, and I think we're doing this now increasingly uh, in, the, at, in Washington here, at, at NATO and other places, uh, and with our allies in East Asia, um, thinking through the implications of a longstanding, uh, deep uh, and deepening relationship between China and Russia strategically, uh, and needing to think through the implications of that uh, in various uh, contingencies and scenarios, what that means um, for the future of the, the, the liberal global order uh, and all of the interests and values that, that we and our allies care about. I think um, there, you know, there's, it's, I think, not a bad thing to continue to think of ways in which we might um, try to, you know, create wedges between China and Russia, but I think for the most part, uh, that's going to be very difficult to achieve and we need to focus our energy on planning for and, and thinking through um, how to deal with the significant implications of the fact that these countries are going to be partners for the long haul. Well, the Chinese, there is a saying about China-Russia relations. In Chinese, it's, uh, it is uh, China and Russia can only share miseries, but not happiness. <laughs> so that really says a lot, right? Oh. Um, so I think moving forward with the strategic competition between U.S. and China and with Russia coming out of this war in, uh, war in Ukraine in, um, in, in, in whichever form, um, I think this relationship is going, to grow. It is going to grow because the misery of both will only increase down the road, right? 
Um, so in that sense, what would be more interesting is to look at not only how they cooperate, but also how they differ. The issue that, um, that Gil just raised, the divergence of their relations. I think there are a couple of things that we will be watching. Um, like, for example, what is going to happen to the Yamato project now that Japan has already pulled out? So Russia will have no uh, alternative source to really diversify their portfolio. So will they be willing to give it to China? Will they be keeping it? Is Russia willing to open more critical infrastructure to China in the Russian high north, for example? Central Asia, I think, is a different question. But if you look at what happened with Kazakhstan earlier this year and the Russians sending peacekeepers from CSTO, ignoring the Chinese proposal to, to have a discussion and potential actions by the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, I think there are going to be interesting, interesting dynamics to emerge. Not that these dynamics are going to outweigh the convergence of their, of their, of their interests, but it does offer a very interesting case study as for the, uh, the long-term trajectory of China-Russia relations. Again, if you think about what Deng Xiaoping said back in the 1980s, quoting the wise man, <laughs> in the 1980s, Deng Xiaoping once said, there are only two countries historically inflicted the most damage on China ever. One is Japan during World War II, the other one is Russia. So when the Chinese look at the relationship with Russia, the historical factor is always going to be there. Russia taking 1.5 million square kilometers of Chinese territory, and Russia supporting of the independence of Mongolia. So in the Chinese book, the, the total territory that Russia took from China, or, or caused China to lose, is more than 4.5 million square kilometers, and that's not a small number. Which is why I feel that if you look at the, the long-term trajectory, there are plenty of historical grievances uh, embedded in there. So definitely interesting to watch. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, I want to um, give a round of applause for both David and for their very excellent remarks. And I also want to give a round of applause for everyone who stayed with you, thank, with us. Thank you very much for staying with us for half a day. Um, we really appreciate this opportunity, in-person opportunity, as well as virtual opportunity to engage with the community. And I just want to note that this is, again, only the first event of our China Power Conference series. We will have a next virtual event, I believe, January 24th, focusing on the economic dimensions of the relationship. And we hope to also have a debate on the nuclear dimensions of the relationship. So stay tuned, and we will be reaching out to you all again. So thank you very much much for joining us.